good evening. It's my great pleasure to be chairing the 2017 annual British Journal of Sociology lecture and also to see some familiar faces, some students and some old colleagues uh, in the hall. Uh, it's very good to see you. Uh, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I'm pleased to announce the winner of a brand new BJS prize. Uh, this is the Early Career Prize, aimed at authors who are in the first five years of their career after having obtained their PhD. The prize goes to what we consider to be the best piece published in the journal by an early career author during the past two years. I'm delighted to say that this year's prize goes to Umit Chetin, uh, for an article he published in our June 2017 issue, Cosmopolitanism and the Relevance of Zombie Concepts, the Case of Anomic Suicide Amongst Alevi Kurd Youth. The paper was derived from Umit's doctoral research, which he undertook at the University of Essex, although he did his master's at the LSE, I'm pleased to say, <laughs> uh, which focused on suicide amongst second-generation Alevi Kurdish young men in London. Umit's paper delves deeply into classical sociology in order to get to grips with his own rich ethnographic data on the Kurdish migrant community in London. It's an excellent and original paper which has something compelling to say about the diversity of trajectories that, that transnational migrants follow in a cosmopolitan city such as London and about the formation of a new rainbow underclass. Umit is now a senior lecturer, that's fast, uh, in history, <laughs> sociology and criminology at the University of Westminster and he's here tonight. Umit, uh, stand up and... Uh, Uh, there is a prize. We, we've put some money into his Bitcoin wallet. Uh, <laughs> it's, I think, a £500 cash prize and probably as many copies of the journal as you'd like for, <laughs> for the rest of your life. Um, uh, I've one further announcement to make before we get on to the main business, which is that we're publishing a special issue in just two weeks on Trump and Brexit. Um, <laughs> We thought that would go down well. Uh, this will be a special volume of the journal, a fifth volume this year, and it consists of ten really rather good papers by sociologi sociologists and political scientists exploring the sociological implications of and parallels between two tumultuous political events, the Leave vote in the UK Brexit referendum in the summer of 2016 and the election of Donald Trump as U.S. President the following November. The issue's been edited by myself, Michelle Lamont, and Mike Savage, and it will be published online on the 8th of November, a good day to publish such a thing, and it will be free to download. If you'd like to receive a copy by email in your inbox that very morning as you celebrate the anniversary of the election, uh, just sign up to our mailing list. So, we come to our 2017 British Journal of Sociology annual lecturer. This event has been running for quite a while now, more than a decade, with a series of very distinguished speakers who've set out their own vision of the most significant questions and debates within their own area of the discipline. Each lecture will be published in the following March issue, again free to download, with a set of responses to it by other scholars within that field, some of whom are here tonight. 
This year's lecture will be given by Alondra Nelson. Alondra has just assumed her position as the 14th president of the Social Science Research Council. She is also professor of sociology at Columbia University in the city of New York, where she served as the inaugural dean of social science, as well as director of the Institute for Research on Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Alondra received a BA in anthropology from the University of California at San Diego and earned a PhD in American studies from New York University in 2003. She was an assistant professor in African-American studies and sociology at Yale from 2003 to 9 before joining Columbia in 2009. She's the author of several books, including two landmark monographs, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination from 2011, and The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations and Reconciliation after the Genome, published in 2016. Alondra's work focuses on the intersections of science, technology, medicine, and inequality. Her books are beautifully written, combining meticulous detail with powerful critical lens and a profound humanity. A unifying thread in her work deals with racialization in science, but she is especially concerned with how this is responded to. As someone who grew up learning about the civil rights movement, she said, I thought it simply couldn't be the case that racist scientists were making race and making justifications for racism without anyone in black communities saying anything about it. And one of the core themes of her book and of the lecture tonight concerns the ambivalence of DNA testing for people of African descent as a scientific tool that can be both dangerous and beneficial. This speaks to much broader themes about race, science, and history that cut across many areas of contemporary sociology, making Alondra an ideal speaker on this platform. So please welcome to the platform Alondra Nelson. Good evening, everyone. Um, Nigel, thank you for uh, that kind introduction, and thank you for um, the honor of uh, this lecture. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful and honored to um, follow uh, in the footsteps of so many scholars um, I admire, um, including my former teacher, Troy Duster, um, who was here uh, a few years ago. Um, I want to um, do something that will be a bit uncomfortable for some, but um, I want to send greetings to um, Ron Ware and Paul Gilroy, who are here, who um, gave me my first job um, and who um, really gave me my first shot. And, and uh, Paul, who really saw in my work a kind of creativity that was not pathological but interesting. And um, so uh, for him, I will be forever grateful for that break, actually, and for being um, a mentor at my side at Yale for the years that we were there together. So I'm going to talk to you this evening um, about my, uh, my 2016 book, The Social Life of DNA, but I've added a, another case study for the occasion of the lecture to um, the conversation that I think makes things um, all the more complicated than I think they were when I tried to describe um, in the book. Um, and basically, I'll be taking you on a kind of journey that I went on um, of about a decade of ethnographic fieldwork with African-American consumers of direct-to-consumer um, genealogy. Uh, which emerges in the United States a couple of years after the UK in sort of 2002 and 2003. 
So, um, but there begins to be rumors. There's a, a kind of um, rumor mill stirring in the United States about the emergence of this market. So as early as 2002 in the New York Times, there are suggestions that there might be direct-to-consumer genetic testing and concerns, and actually in some instances sort of aspirations for what this testing might mean for African Americans, right? Could there at last be a kind of link to uh, the lost roots of people of African descent uh, living in the United States and the Americas and the descendants of people who had been enslaved. So if I were to endeavor this research today, um, I could probably use Mechanical Turk or you know, ask many of you here to fill out a survey about your experience using direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry testing. But when I began this research in 2003, it was such a new market that you actually had to go and find people. So I found myself wanting to do a project on a newly emergent technology, but having to go back to spaces of um, fairly conventional and old-fashioned spaces of genealogical clubs and societies to find people who were the early adopters of these technologies. And one of the takeaways for this evening, I hope that you'll bring away with you, um, is that not only were African Americans um, their only affect or response to this new technology, it was not only um, apprehension, but moreover, many were early adopters in this space um, and a new space of um, direct-to-consumer genetics. So I began going to these conventional genealogy um, con uh, societies and associations. I joined several, both national and local bodies. Um, unless they say otherwise, their photographs are ones that I've taken. So this is from my field work. This is from uh, the National um, Meeting of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. This is in 2006 at a time when uh, genealogists still needed to be convinced that genetics might be useful. Like this, so this was two years before 23andMe launches in the United States, long before um, you really had the direct-to-consumer genetic testing market become a kind of Web 2.0 and social media space. So it was still a market in which we were trying to figure out whether or not it was going to take off. Moreover, um, you had to quite literally, there was a lot of education. So this was um, at this annual meeting of the Afro-American Historical and Sociological Society, um, and a DNA 101 um, uh, seminar, right? Um, and so uh, you'll see the, whole, the woman here holding um, uh, double helix. And this photograph also suggests for you a little bit who were the early um, people in my sample. Genealogists tend to be in the United States, um, you know, 50 or 60 or older. Um, they're typically upper middle class. They're well educated. They typically have um, either the leisure time or the leisure income or both that it takes to devote to genealogy because it's actually quite time intensive and labor intensive, um, and um, predominantly women. So we know, I, 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 I lift in my, from the, the social work literature, um, uh, um, uh, a, a category called Ken Keeper, um, which is used in, in the social work literature to describe genealogists who are predominantly women. And in the, Ken, in the social work literature, uh, the Ken Keeper is the person in your family that you can call and get caught up on everyone else in your family, right? You could call 10 people or you could call that one person, typically a woman, who will fill you in on babies, marriages, divorces, and the like. And we might think of genealogical practice as being a similar kind of kin-keeping work. So this is from that same session, this DNA 101 seminar, in which um, they're holding up here, the genealogists, bits of, of um, construction paper representing the nitrogen bases found in the nucleotides that comprise DNA.
This is also from that same meeting. Um, this meeting happened to take place in Massachusetts. Um, the person in the foreground with the suit on is um, an African-American geneticist named uh, Jamie um, Wilson, who was hosting the seminar. And I just brought you this photo of an African-American man in colonial garb to show you that there is a, a thing as genealogical cosplay. So. My research took me to all sorts of um, interesting spaces where I had to spend a lot of time with genealogists, um, initially asking questions about um, whether or not they were going to do the testing and how they felt about their identity before and after the testing. In the course of doing this work, I would also travel with 3,000 African Americans to Salt Lake City, Utah, um, where we would be um, hosted, the, the annual meeting would be hosted there and would be hosted by the Mormon community there at the um, National Family History Library. I would spend time at the um, Mormon Latter-day Saints Church or Mormon Church in Harlem. Um, those of you who've been to Harlem, uh, New York, will recognize or recall that there are um, lots of churches that look sort of very typical of Harlem, and then there's a kind of white uh, steeple that looks a little bit different, which is on a 128th and Malcolm X Boulevard, which is the Harlem LDS Church, um, which has Black History Month events. Um, this is one of them, um, and the speaker is a woman named Sharon Wilkins, who was the um, president of my local chapter, my Harlem chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, where I learned to think and, and, and do like a genealogist. My research actually also brought me to London and to the LSE. Some of the social life of DNA, I don't know if you know this, Nigel, was written here um, at the LSE when I was on fellowship here. Um, and I have, there's a little bit of my book that's about um, uh, the Motherland group, right? So some of you will recall this now ancient um, BBC Two documentary, Motherland, A Genetic Journey, which came out in 2004. Um, but the three people that are pictured here were part of a larger group called the Motherland group that was about 300 individuals um, who did the testing and then who sort of kept in touch for many years afterwards. Um, and so I interviewed um, variously uh, parts of members of the Motherland group about their experiences and, and write a little bit about that. So in my early research, I went in partly as a, a student of Troy Dusters, you know, um, interested in questions about racial reification, about um, genetic essentialism, and about the sort of dangers that genetic ancestry testing might pose, um, particularly for communities of African descent, given the history of scientific racism. And I also had, I think, a fairly simple research design, which was sort of basically saying, you know, how do you feel now, now that you've had the testing, how did you feel before, what impact does it have, and the like. And my early results, and some of the early writing that I did, were, um, for good or for not, not unlike some of the genetic genealogy television shows that you're probably now well familiar with, including, um, which were effectively um, imported from the UK, um, including uh, Who Do You Think You Are and various shows by Skip Gates. So some of this early writing um, takes place um, as I'm actually doing the research I'm writing, which is not an experience I'd had before in my research, um, and I kind of write up you know, what becomes my sort of dealing with, my sort of wrestling with this sort of question of racial essentialism and a 2008 piece in the Social Studies of Science. But as I was writing this piece and going through the ethnographic field notes and coding my field notes, it became clear to me in the writing of this piece that I was trying to contain into a very strict kind of theoretical or conceptual frame about genetic essentialism, something that was actually far richer and deeper. And so I don't want to suggest to you this evening that those questions 
questions aren't important. I do want to suggest to you that there, there are also other important questions and, more interesting, and other interesting things that are happening. So one of the questions we might also pose about genetic ancestry testing, which effectively starts in, um, you know, here in the UK in about 2000, in the US in 2002, 2003, as a kind of startup, is why is it still around, right? Certainly in the U.S. and a bit in the U.K., we had had another roots fad, a prior roots fad. We'd had another moment where there had been a lot of fascination with root seeking. And, you know, this is in 1976, 1977, but by 1980, we were no longer, um, you know, going to the local five and dime to buy, you know, copy, you know, family trees that you could, coloring books, and there was all sorts of kind of kitsch and, and uh, paraphernalia that came with uh, this root seeking fad. But here we were in 2008 and 2009, and it's, there's no sign of diminishing, right? If anything, the industry is only getting bigger. It went from being a small industry of early adopters in the United States to being a billion-dollar industry now with well over 3 million consumers. So I started to think about what else was happening here. What are the tests doing as a social practice that made genetic ancestry testing sticky? Why is it sticking around five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later? if it was, on the face of it, effectively a startup that might have easily failed. So I changed methodology a little bit from a, a kind of interview protocol um, to a more uh, deep and more in-depth ethnographic um, approach. And um, I started to um, following lots of folks, Arjuna Potterai, um, who writes to us, um, describes to us that meaning, uh, the meaning of things in the world come in part from their social circulation and their social meaning, um, in part following um, the work of uh, Sarah Franklin and Celia Roberts on the social life of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which tells us that we can account for the social dimensions of biomedical technologies by following them around, and indeed the work of Nigel Dodd, um, which tells us that um, things have, you know, the meanings of things is a process, right? Not a thing. That value derives from dynamic, ever-changing, and often contested social relations that sustain the circulation, its circulation. So I would say that unlike Sarah, you know, what I found in this new consumer market of um, genetic testing was that the tests themselves and the meanings of genetics exploded outside of a biomedical frame, right? So that part of what I was, was seeing as I f allowed myself to follow the tests and move away from just saying, are these tests genetically, genetic essentialism or not, was that there was a kind of spillover um, of genetic analysis and genetic testing that moved from genealogical domains to forensic domains to medical domains and back again. And so, so much of our sociological literature on genetics is very subfield specific. So criminologists study forensic genetics, medical sociologists study medical genetics, um, people who study culture or power like I do might be interested in the political implications of genetic ancestry testing. But what I found in following the tests is that, and, and following the users beyond that sort of first or second interview, following them over many years, was that their understanding of genetic ancestry testing had everything to do with what they thought about um, their conversation with a genetic counselor about some genetic disease might, that might be in their family. That their understanding of genetic ancestry testing had everything to do with whether or not they thought it was a good thing that in the United States we have a nonprofit called the Innocence Project um, that uses genetic analysis to exonerate people who've been falsely convicted. So this sort of spillover created in this moment a new kind of power, a new social power for genetics and a new social life that was not specific to a particular domain. 
And it also, in, this, in my work in the social life of DNA, I'm interested in the multiple uses to which genetic ancestry testing is put. And I'll tell you a little bit about that that I'm also going to tell you um, about a more recent case um, about, of, of the Georgetown 272. So when I let myself loose, and I'm really saying this for the students, when I let myself loose from my clipboard and my questions and started to travel around with people who were interested in genetic ancestry testing, I found myself traveling for a few years with a family who are the descendants of um, a formerly enslaved man named Venture Smith. So this is them in East Haddam, Connecticut. Um, outside of the East Haddam Congregational Church where they gather each year in the fall and lay a wreath on his grave. So Venture Smith lived until 1805. Um, this is a, a picture of his gravestone here. Before he died, um, he left one of the few slave narratives that we have um, and also one of the few that go back to the continent of Africa. So um, even accounting for the amunesis, the person who wrote this with and for Venture Smith. It's an extraordinary document. It's a document that narrates what his life was in his village on the continent of Africa. It narrates the Middle Passage. Um, he talks about what it was like to be enslaved, and he talks about how he, over time, brought himself out of freedom by working a kind of effectively a second shift after he did his work as an enslaved laborer. So we know um, quite a bit about Venture Smith. We also know quite a bit about him um, because he is a very important historical figure in Connecticut, in the state of Connecticut. He became very wealthy. Um, a lot of state genealogy and history is devoted to knowing about his life. And indeed, um, his family knows each other well. It's not a case in which the dis his descendants are unknown. These are members of him pictured here in front of his gravestone in Connecticut. So one of the curious things as I followed this family is that in 2006, they allowed researchers from the University of Hull here um, and the University of Connecticut to exhume his body, um, to do genetic analysis on it, um, uh, allegedly or you know, putatively to find out where he's from. So again, I say to you that we have in, the, in Venture Smith a fairly fulsome narrative, one that's been verified by historians, um, verified by linguists, suggests that he's from contemporary Guinea, and yet we thought that genetics could tell us something else about his African past, right, about his African origins. So that to me became a very interesting sociological puzzle. What is it that we think genetics can do that history, linguistics, um, autobiography, even accounting for the filter of another cannot do? And so I posed these question, this question to his family over time, delicately. Um, and, you know, one of them said, well, we hope it'll help school children. So there was a kind of educational purpose. Um, he had two, at the time, living eighth-generation descendants. Um, uh, one of them's now deceased. Um, the, the second of them said to me, um, I hope it will bring healing. And so this is when I began to think about genetic ancestry testing as being much more than about identity. And if it's much more than about identity, it's also much more than about being about genetic essentialism, right? There's something else sort of happening here because um, people are throwing it into process in the world or they're not trying to necessarily say it's only about a fixed thing. It's actually meant to do some work in the world. So moving forward, I came to think about, um, tried to think about genetic ancestry testing that's used by African Americans on a bigger scale, right? I mean, one way to think about it could be these are the particular you know, um, preoccupations of the descendants of slaves who have a deep yearning for um, uh, their pre-Middle Passage ancestry lineage uh, healing and the like. 
But I also started to look at what else was happening in the 80s, in the 90s, in the early aughts around genetic testing. And I want to suggest to you that we can understand um, the why, in part, genetic ancestry testing is so sticky, why genetic analysis is so sticky, because genetics has been doing lots of things in the world around social or endeavoring. We've been using it to endeavor to do things in the world around resolving controversies, answering questions about the past, solving mysteries, right? So I use the concept reconciliation projects to describe the sites and practices in which genetic analysis is put in which genetic analysis is put to the task of resolving controversies or answering questions about the past. Another example of this, just to give you um, a, a kind of split screen that widens up what we think is happening with African Americans in genetic ancestry testing, um, is the case of the grandmothers of the May Plaza in Argentina. Um, pictured, there's um, two of the. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. Let's see. Two of the leaders pictured um, here in the 1980s with Mary Claire King, um, very important geneticist who makes important developments with our understanding of BRCA cancer markers. Um, and here are some of the activists here. So Mary Claire King um, works with the grandmothers of the May Plaza, um, first using blood antigens, HLA antigens, and later using genetic testing. Um, for a time, uh, this project of using genetic testing to locate the children, the disappeared grandchildren um, of these women, women who had been lost um, and disappeared by the authoritarian regime in Argentina became a state project. It was a kind of state form of reconciliation using genetic analysis to reunite these families. And the project is ongoing. I am, of course, however, particularly interested in what we might think of as a subset of this larger phenomenon of racial of reconciliation projects that I want to, um, again, suggest does not only exist among African Americans, but for af many African Americans, what's at stake is the particular resolution of injuries that are, are variously produced by the history of racial slavery and the use of genetic forms of genetic analysis to do that. So one of the ways that this is foreshadowed in the United States is um, in the years in the late 1990s and early aughts when we begin to have widening uses for genetics, when we realize that genetic analysis is going to be, um, can be used for more than just doing clinical medical research, um, some of the very first papers in the United States to use it are about controversies about slavery. So this is a paper some of you might know from 1998 um, in Nature, uh, Jefferson fathered slaves last child, right? So we have a new technological tool new ways of thinking about genetics. And in the US, they're turned almost immediately in a top peer-reviewed journal to the question of a founding father and the relationship to racial slavery, to human slavery, right? Just to give you a sense. So in the course of doing my research, um, I sort of followed early researchers who were interested in these sort of historical questions around racial slavery, including an African-American geneticist named Rick Kittles. I don't have time to tell you um, a lot about Rick this evening, um, but just for shorthand, um, I want you to know that he was, um, as a graduate student in genetics at George Washington University, a junior researcher on the African Burial Ground Project in uh, Lower Manhattan in New York City, um, in which he used some then very new um, ancient DNA techniques to try to discern what the ancestry was of the, of the Africans who were buried there, um, dated to be from colonial era um, New York. 
Um, Rick uses this technology in which he effectively uses widely available um, genetic samples to create a reference database and then uses that to infer um, the genetic ancestry, the possible genetic ancestry of the remains of, that are buried in the African burial ground. He turns this into a commercial enterprise in 2004 um, called uh, African Ancestry. So it's an early company in the United States. Um, in 2004, um, there are only four genetic ancestry, um, direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. This is one of them. It's the only one that's black-owned, um, both by both the um, chief science officer, Kittles, the geneticist, and his business partner are African-American. Of those four companies, only two remain uh, today in the market, African Ancestry and Family Tree DNA, to give you a sense of the longevity of this company. So they offered... Very basic inferences, right? A certificate of ancestry. I mean, one of the things I write about in The Social Life of DNA is that um, if we were doing genetic ancestry testing, direct-to-consumer genetics, and, it, it, and, and performing it in the most scientific way, what consumers would get back would just be sheets and sheets and sheets and sheets of, of genetic markers, right, with no meaning at all. But what each of the companies do is create meaning variously around their work, right? So this company gives you a certificate of ancestry that gives you an inference to an ethnic group in a nation state. Um, when 23andMe comes on the market, they allow it to be a kind of social media experience. They're giving you graphs and charts and other things. Um, the National Geographic Project uses haplotype groups, deep history and time. And so all of the different companies are really appealing to a different kind of consumer desire for a certain kind of information about the past using genetics. So before I go any further, let me, of course, say, um, um, using this as a placeholder, a, a piece that um, I wrote with some collaborators, um, there are lots of limitations, right, to direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Limitations that are technical, limitations um, about its um, ahistoricity, about the inferences they make about ancestry, um, and just, uh, frankly, uh, about the, the sort of fact that it's not actually peer-reviewed science, right? These are proprietary reference databases um, that are held as trade secrets. Um, there's not transparency about the algorithms that are used, about how the genetic markers are weighted, typically, um, to make different inferences about ethnicity, about um, population, about ancestry. Nevertheless, um, the tests are very powerful. So I'm going to talk you, walk you through a few of uh, more of the vignettes in my ethnographic fieldwork. This one is called the Sara. So some of you will recognize the gentleman in the striped tunic. He's the African-American actor Isaiah Washington, who was on Grey's Anatomy for many years. Um, he's been on many other television shows. Um, and uh, before he gets kicked off of Grey's Anatomy for um, being a bigot, effectively, um, he... Uh, he is a judge, or receives an award, actually, from a Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles in 2003. And, as, um, and he gets a swag bag, and the swag bag includes um, um, genetic ancestry testing from uh, the African Ancestry Company. So he becomes an early adopter, and you won't be surprised to hear, given how much celebrity has now, in the 15 years really since this market has evolved, been interwoven with reveals and the sort of in the market of consumer testing, um, that it was important for African Ancestry and other companies to get their tests very early on into the hands of celebrities and news presenters and the like. 
So on this occasion, um, I'm, I, you know, it, it's, it's 2009, I'm still teaching at Yale. Um, I get invited by a group of people I've come to meet, including Isaiah, who call themselves DNA Sierra Leoneans, people who have used genetic ancestry testing and who lay claim to Sierra Leone based on these tests. So the three people pictured in the photograph here, so this is Isaiah, um, DNA Sierra Leonean. This is a woman uh, named um, Tomalyn Polite. The Polite family, uh, this is in, um, excuse me, I should say, this is in Charleston, uh, North, uh, South Carolina, um, which was a significant slave trading port. Tomalyn Polite um, comes from one of the few African-American families that can trace her ancestry to before the Middle Passage based on slave manifests. She's the descendant of a little girl named Priscilla who was trafficked here, so some of you might know of the Priscilla story. This gentleman is named Amadou Masali. He has now um, immigrated back to Sierra Leone but had lived in the United States for about 25 years, and he flew in from Dallas to be the sort of griot or officiant of the ceremony that I had been invited to called Asara. It was a ceremony of remembrance to rest the souls of ancestors who had been lost in the slave trade on both sides of the Atlantic. I was there in Charleston um, with about 20 other people. It was a very small and intimate affair. It was very sober. Um, you sort of get a sense of the scenery here. It, there was also a kind of, I don't know if you can't quite see it here, it was also surreal because all of this is um, taking place along the shore of the Ashley River, uh, where we know there were two significant auctions of enslaved Africans um, uh, that took place, and it was, it was chosen deliberately for that. Um, but this site took place behind a, a suburban subdivision, so you have to drive through these suburbs to sort of get back to this kind of archetypal southern um, Ashley Ferry landing. So this image might be familiar to you, to some of you, um, advertising uh, a ship from Bunce Island um, to the Ashley Ferry Landing, which I was just showing you, uh, of uh, enslaved Africans to the Carolina coast. So Masali had soil that day that he claimed was from Sierra Leone that he cast into the Ashley River that was part of the ceremony of remembrance and reconciliation related to the slave trade. Members of the DNA Sierra Leonean community prayed, sang, uh, laid wreaths to remember their enslaved ancestors. So what I want to suggest to you um, from this vignette, which I can say much more about um, in our conversation, is that um, if we stop at genetic ancestry testing being only about identity, we actually lose how it then, after the identity piece is done, we might think of that as sort of phase one, right? That becomes a threshold that allows, that opens up a whole series of social practices. And in this case, a kind of pseudo-religious ceremony that's doing a work of reconciliation um, between, within an African diaspora community around, reconciliation, around um, uh, uh, racial reconciliation. Another vignette. This is Deidre Farmer-Palman. Um, she is um, an attorney, she's a reparations activist, and she had come to know Rick Kittles, the owner and founder of um, African Ancestry, when they were both graduate students at George Washington University. Recall that he, I mentioned that he finished his PhD there, she was doing a master's degree in lobbying effectively, and she becomes um, an important historical figure. She is later called the Rosa Parks of the reparations litigation movement, because she puts herself to, through law school in order to bring forward for the first time in over a century a case to advance the cause of reparations for slavery in the United States. 
She's the lead plaintiff in a class action suit for slavery reparations, Farmer Palman versus Fleet Boston, um, that uh, enters the courts in 2002. Um, the plaintiffs, uh, or excuse me, the defendants are 21 multinational corporations. The logic is that these corporations exist today based on wealth that was created during the slave trade, right? So Lloyds of London insured um, enslaved people on behalf of their owners, CXX, is, exist today because they trafficked enslaved people across the United States and elsewhere, Aetna Insurance and the like. So this becomes a, a big deal, a big splash in 2002 um, when it's in the news. Um, and you won't be surprised to hear that 21 multinational companies had um, scores and scores of white shoe, shoe attorneys who sort of threw every potential strategy for dismissal at this case. By 2004, um, there's a dismissal. And the dismissal is very interesting um, because it makes the following claim. The case is dismissed without prejudice. They're allowed to bring certain aspects of it back. The court says the plaintiffs cannot establish a personal injury sufficient to confer standing. Effectively, in a legal, in a civil court case in the United States, they couldn't prove that they were the injured parties to whom restitution was owed. Yeah? By merely alleging some genealogical relationship to African Americans held in slavery over 100, 200, or 300 years ago. So Farmer Palman and her attorneys sort of go back to the drawing board. They're making plans to enter a narrower lawsuit um, that responds to the places strategically that they can still move in this case. Um, they go to the African Ancestry Company, which at this time is one year old, right? So again, one of the takeaways is African Americans as early adopters in the direct-to-consumer genetic testing industry. One-year-old DTC genetic testing company, one of less than sort of eight or ten companies in the United States at the time, the plaintiffs go do mitochondrial DNA testing, Y-chromosome DNA testing, and enter their test results as evidence in this court case, in this appeal, as evidence that they weren't just merely alleging a genealogical relationship to formerly enslaved people. So you didn't hear about a decision moving this forward. I should also say that um, they were using a, a similar strategy. Um, one of her, the attorneys was a gentleman named Edward Fagan, who had, about two years before, successfully tried a case against Swiss banks on behalf of Holocaust survivors. But it's a different court system, similar strategy. So just to, to let you know that there's a, a kind of more world historical strategy at work here. So the court dismisses the reparations claim again. You won't be surprised to hear that. Um, but before we have in the United States court a big Supreme Court decision in Myriad Genetics, which is the, time, the first time that the Supreme Court really has to wrestle with what genetics means and what um, uh, copyright and intellectual property mean, you know, a really big decision. Um, we have in this appellate civil court the court's saying quite a lot about genetics. So it's, um, there are two decisions, and together they're about 150 pages. Um, but it's the court sort of wrestling with the new industry um, as it's really emerging. The decision here is that genetic mapping or DNA testing alone is insufficient to provide a decisive link to homeland, right? So this case is not successful. Um, I think, you know, politically and ideologically, I don't think a reparations uh, slavery, a slavery reparations suit will ever be successful in a U.S. court of law. Um, but uh, the evidence here was not sufficient for reasons that we can discuss and you might understand. So in the early aughts, there's not only this Farmer Palman case, there are also um, very important influential lawyers at Harvard, Charles Ogletree in the Harvard Law School, Randall Robinson um, from TransAfrica, who have started around the same time um, what's called the Restitution Study Group at Harvard. 
And they were trying to also think about if for the first time in 150 years, there might be a legal way to try to move forward a case of restitution or reparations um, for slavery. So this case finds its way at Brown University and other universities um, in the United States as a kind of source of controversy. It also becomes the case that um, a former 60s activist now turned neocon in the United States, David Horowitz, um, sends, uh, puts, places lots of ads in Ivy League college newspapers um, saying that, you know, reparations should, is a, you know, should not be brought forward and it's, you know, it's racist to even propose it and the like. So one of these institutions was Brown University, um, which in 2003 um, elects or selects, or excuse me, in 2001 actually um, brings on board Ruth Simmons, who becomes the first African-American Ivy League College University president and also the first woman president at at Brown University. So Brown University is a mess. There's been an interim president for two years. Um, Ruth Simmons is selected, gets to work of fixing things fiscally. And then she sort of goes on also a moral mission, in part because she's having conversations with members of the restitution study group. There's been activism and debate on the campus of Brown about the history of slavery, about whether or not Brown has ties to slavery. Um, In 2001, at Yale University, some graduate students publish a study called Yale Abolition and Slavery, in which they demonstrate um, that uh, um, endowed professorships, a library, um, and, you know, um, and endowed, um, uh, and endowed scholarships um, were funded in part through um, the labor of slaves, wealth um, that was accumulated through the labor of slaves. And indeed, as you now know, probably if you've been following the case of Calhoun College, that controversy at Yale University, Remember, many of the sort of founding fathers, as we might call them, many of the men for whom colleges are named at Yale University um, had some relationship to um, the trafficking in human slaves um, in earlier centuries. So Ruth Simmons, um, um, in 2003, um, she charges a committee um, to look into slavery at the university. Uh, She calls it the Steering Committee on Slavery and Justice. Um, They confer for a couple of years and in 2006 release this report. And this becomes a sort of movement at universities. And it's... um, Um, The report shows that Brown did indeed benefit in the early years from money generated by the slave trade, um, that at least 30 members of Brown's Board of Governors um, owned or captained slaves, owned slaves or captained slave ships, um, and also that members of the Brown family um, were involved in the slave trade. And there's an interesting kind of story about two brothers, um, one named Moses and one named John, uh, the former um, who was a supporter of slavery, the latter who became an abolitionist, um, and they're sort of, they had a sort of entrenched warfare in their family. Um, and this committee would be chaired by a Stanford University historian named James Campbell, who would comment to the New Yorker that, Um, The difference between Moses and John, right, illustrated that there are moral choices to be made um, and how even in one family, different moral choices can be made. Often, um, you know, in conversations about slavery or about other injustices of the past, you know, sometimes the defense is, well, that was what was the moral norm of the time, yeah? But here you have in a single family different moral choices being made in a similar context. So we might say that Ruth Simmons showed us that U.S. colleges and universities, too, had moral choices that they could make and carved out a new moral valence for institutions of higher education in the United States that did not previously exist around the history of slavery and justice. So as I mentioned, Yale preceded this by a few years. 
Um, in the United States, there's been um, more than close to two dozen universities that have had some sort of process, project, um, survey, historiography about the history of slavery at the institution, at their institution. This is the University of Virginia, Harvard, um, which comes late, and Georgetown. So I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking to you about the Georgetown case and about how um, the university becomes, I think, to some, uh, the kind of last vantage for a kind of moral leadership around racial politics and racial reconciliation in the United States, a kind of moral politics that becomes particularly acute at a Jesuit institution like Georgetown University. So if you've been following this story, um, you may know this gentleman pictured here is a man named Richard Cellini, who's an alumni, uh, an alum of Georgetown University, um, who had been a kind of, who had been since the late 1980s, he's in the New York Times in the late 1980s, a kind of muckraking and troublemaking alumni who really wanted to break down the patriarchy of, um, and the hierarchy of the Georgetown Board of Directors. Um, there used to be a sort of secondary role for alums who were lay people, um, and he was involved in really sort of democratizing the board of directors. So he's been very much involved in leading um, the organization, the institution, for a long time. So Georgetown conducts a report. They get a faculty working group. There's alumni. There's students. Um, they um, have a, this working group comes up with this report on slavery, many, memory, and reconciliation. Excuse me. <clears throat> but Cellini says that Georgetown must do more, right? He says, this is not an embodied, so, so the story of Georgetown is that, um, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. In 2005, um, Georgetown establishes this working group to explore the origins, um, the organization's ties to the history of slavery. It had been widely known that um, various Jesuit organizations owned slaves, and it was known um, that uh, Jesuits at Georgetown owned slaves. Um, but it was really the galvanizing of the politics of, of all of these other universities doing this work and this particular political moment, in this case in 2015, um, that made it important um, and highlighted the fact um, to the larger community that in 1838, the Jesuit stewards of Georgetown College had sold 272 enslaved persons of African descent who were riding, uh, residing in Maryland to two purchasers in Louisiana. So at the conclusion, when this report is released, Cellini demands and says that something be done about this. It's not just enough to have a report, that it's time to do something about it. And he says to the New York Times, this is not a disembodied group of people who are nameless and faceless. These are real people with real names and real descendants. One of these descendants is, a, uh, um, excuse me, one of these formerly enslaved um, uh, at Georgetown, uh, the, who are called the GU-272, um, was a man named Isaac Hawkins. And so um, what Cellini does is, beginning with Hawkins and then soon after other families, he hires eight genealogists to begin to find out who these people are. So genealogy comes to play a role um, in the reconciliation politics that's happening on Georgetown University. So these are some of the genealogists. The woman in the green blouse is a woman named Judy Raffel, who's a very prominent in genealogical circles, which I've come to know. Um, Louisiana genealogist, she knows how to sort of find people and the right records and the like. 
Um, the woman um, pictured uh, in the sort of chartreuse jacket here is a woman named Patricia Bayonne Johnson, um, who lives not in Washington, D.C., but in Washington State, um, who is the president of her local genealogical chapter and involves all of the members of her local genealogical community in trying to est establish her relationship to the formerly enslaved um, GU-72. So conventional genealogy is used. Um, new forms of genealogy, Ancestry.com, um, offers um, genealogy services, both conventional and genetic, to people who are to members of the GU-72. Uh, there are private um, genealogical groups in which people are trying to figure out what their particular relationships are. Um, there are um, other genealogy sites, like this one, um, where genealogists can go. And this one combines um, both information about um, what's known about the genealogy from there's a slave list and there's some uh, pedigree charts, but it also provides evidence, as Ancestry.com does, about possible DNA connections, right? So are there people who are also using this database who are um, first degree or second degree, which is not like how we think about cousins typically and, and conventional kinship, um, uh, DNA connections who might also be related? So um, Cellini succeeds. I mean, we're actually um, descendants of Isaac Hawkins and others are finding each other. This is Earlene Campbell Coleman, the great, great, great granddaughter of a man named Frank Campbell, who is pictured there, uh, who was enslaved at Georgetown College and sold down to Louisiana. And um, in addition to finding the people, which Georgetown wanted them, uh, Cellini demanded that the institution begin to do, um, the genealogical relationships then allow two interesting things to happen at Georgetown. Um, and this is uh, the woman I showed you earlier with the, the chartreuse jacket on, Patricia Bayonne Johnson again, holding a photograph of one of her um, uh, descent, formerly enslaved descendants. Um, so Georgetown allows legacy status, right? A kind of thumb on the scale of admission to the descendants who can of the GU-72 to Georgetown, should they choose to go, and two people have accepted that. And I think sort of more importantly for a Catholic institution, um, they have a mass um, attended by hundreds, a liturgy of remembrance, contrition, and hope. That's a sort of public event at Georgetown University um, that's enabled in part um, through the use of genetic genealogy, which allows the identification of the community. So you can see there are members on the stage here. There are um, uh, Jack DeJoya, who's the president of Georgetown University. It's a little bit dark, but um, there are members of the descendant community here. Um, and members of the Jesuit community, community, both from the larger diocesan community and from the larger university. And there are folks that are seated here and all around here. So it was actually um, quite a, a big deal and a big day. And it was um, uh, um, live streamed and the like. And if you're interested, you can probably find it online. So soon after, indeed the next day, um, the descendants began to say, we're so thankful, we're so grateful to have found each other, we're so grateful to know that we are the descendants of the GU-72. Um, but is this thumb on the scale for admissions that offers no financial support for people who want to go enough? Um, and is liturgy alone enough? So this is an ongoing story, um, but a story that is brought to us through the VEX technology of genetic genealogy, a technology that um, is heteronormative in the way that it thinks about kinship. I mean, I don't have time to tell you about what's interesting about Venture Smith's family is that um, 
they make a, a really big deal out of understanding their family to not only be, you know, bio family, and to that, and they are very proud of the fact that they sort of have a very big umbrella of how they think about their family. Um, but it also allows some conversations that have might not have been possible um, in a very particular way about particular harms, particular injuries, um, and particular social justice claims. So to wrap up. So what the Georgetown case in particular has caused me to think about um, and moving on from having finished the social life of DNA and thinking about where reconciliation projects are continuing to go is a distinction perhaps between moral institutions and institutional morality. So we understand in the social science literature and other forms of religious studies literature, moral institutions to be institutions that have um, norms that are inherent to them that make them sort of be or do moral things in the world, right? I want to suggest that institutional morality is really more about um, what Ruth Simmons did, about an institution, what Jack DeJoya did at Georgetown, about an institution making a choice to create new moral norms. Right? There are no, any moral institution we have does not have as one of its norms that there should be practices, um, liturgies of reconciliation with the former descendants of slaves. And I want to offer this as a kind of process, right? So Didier Fassan offers us that moral economies can be um, activities that are in formation, right? Instead of thinking about moral institutions as being sort of rigid and staid, that we can think about institutional morality um, as a kind of choice, as a kind of process in the world. Um, and he talks about moral economies as being connected in the daily activities of institutions through the values and act affects which crystallize around social issues and the responses that are given in concrete situations. So as I said, you know, genealogy and genetics are vexed tools of politics. They're vexed tools of freedom and racial reconciliation. Um, but I want to imagine that cultivating institutional morality is critical at a time where there are few other institutional spaces to even entertain or even, that are even willing to endeavor a difficult and necessary conversation about the work of racial reconciliation. Thank you. So thank you, Alondra. We've got half an hour. <coughs> Excuse me, it's me. My turn to cough. Uh, half an hour for questions. So uh, feel free to put your hands up, and we'll bring a microphone. Uh, there's one at the back there. All the way in the back, yeah. yeah. <coughs> Thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about the. Um, so I'm not. I'm not. I don't really know much about the. Uh, schooling system in America but I just wanted to ask you to clarify a bit more about the fact that the descendants can get assisted schooling and how, how that works mm. and, and it seemed to be that some people were then saying it's not enough yeah yeah so, thanks yes sure it's um it's an elite system of affiliation. So um, at elite institutions in the United States, the equivalent of Oxbridge here, um, if your parent attended the institution, you have preferential admission, 
right? It doesn't guarantee that you're going to get in by any stretch of the imagination, but it gives you sort of additional points in the admission process. So this is effectively what Georgetown has done. Um, but, of course, the descendants, some of the descendant families are saying it's, you know, not that they want admissions or, you know, funds for themselves necessarily, but that this is not enough. And that part of what the legacy, if, if Georgetown wants to be really serious and be the moral leader and what the consequences and what it means for all of these institutions to be doing these studies on slavery and some of them to be filing it away in the library and doing nothing, um, then um, it, it means that they have to be willing to entertain that part of the consequences of this is that there was wealth lost and gain that might prevent people who would want to attend, even if they could get legacy status from doing so. Not them as individuals. It's actually a much more sophisticated claim than that, um, but that they, but that, that Georgetown should help financially, right, and areas to, you know, to be determined and shaped. Um, so right at the end you were talking about institutional morality, mm-hmm. but uh, to kind of link that, this might be a bit optimistic of me. Do you think there would ever be a... Uh, uh, a legal morality where you could mix the kind of um, uh, literary uh, examples of ancestry, such as with Venture Smith, and the kind of genetic ancestry to actually bring around uh, racial reparations uh, in the courts? Yeah. Um, this question comes up a lot. I mean, the, because the, the, um, the reparations case is a kind of juicy puzzle. It's a kind of legal puzzle. It's a kind of logic puzzle. Um, you know, I think fundamentally that, you know, law, particularly, you know, I don't know Commonwealth law very well, but U.S. law is so much about interpretation. And so I think for all sorts of ideological reasons, I don't think there will ever be an evidentiary bar that can be cleared that will sort of advance the cause of, uh, you know, advance the case of slavery reparations. Um, But I think what I find so interesting is that this is a struggle that's gone on for 400 years, um, and with and within a year of the introduction of new technology, you have activists who are saying, "Oh, let's try that." You know, we've tried this, we've tried that, and the courts had really, you know, why there had not been a case that could be advanced in the courts is because um, uh, earlier endeavors to do this um, 150 years ago uh, ran up against in the U.S. courts what's called the sovereignty of um, the doctrine of sovereign immunity, which which says that the the executive branch of the U.S. government government cannot sue itself, right, which was how the cases were being um, brought before. So Farmer Palman is advancing a genealogical strategy and trying to take another tack. Um, And that strategy has really been constrained. I mean, there's some, you know, is there some possibility? I I think um, um, a a probably more likely scenario would be um, the use of tools of a company like Ancestry.com, which now, um, you know, sort of the great romance or the great sort of fantasy of genetic genealogy was that, um, and you see it play out in these um, genetic genealogy television shows, is that, um, and a narrated in genetic genealogy television show. So you go back this far with the paper trail, and then you reach a, a brick wall, as genealogists call it, and then you do the genetics. And then, you know, there's a sort of sense that it, they go in lockstep. You can go back to the paper trail to 1823 or something, and then the genetics will fill up, fill in everything else. But of course, these are two completely different epistemologies. So instead of them being like this, they're actually sort of like this. But Ancestry.com does offer um, the ability to do both genetic ancestry testing and use conventional genealogical tools. Um, And they have a a kind of um, 
community network system that pings you when you match people. So it's more likely than it was. I mean, this is sort of two or three years old. Um, you know, five or ten years ago, it would have been you would have had to do the genealogy and see if there's a match, and then try another database to see if there's genetics. You can actually be pinged um, by the sort of system if you and someone have a kind of fairly a fair proximity of genetic ancestry and a fair proximity on a kind of family tree, which sort of gets you closer, but it's still not this, right? It's still a little bit of that. So some of, but I but I think your your point is. Um, is exactly the point. I mean, there, there could be potentially a way to use lots of different strategies, right? Um, historical, genealogical, conventional, um, vital records and the like. Uh, but there must be a will to do it, right? There must be a moral choice that is made to do it. And, and you know, I think uh, reasonable people can have different opinions about that. I'm not, you know, making the, the case for um, coming out one way or another. But, um, yeah. This is the great Sarah Franklin, by the way. Um, thank you, great uh, Laundra Nelson. Um, I had so many questions that it's very hard to know where to begin, but um, first of all, to begin just by thanking you for this and all the wonderful work you've done, and you've just really opened up so many fascinating questions about the moral meaning of biology, the moral meaning of biology when it's used to establish a blood tie, the um, legal meaning of biology in the United States, um, when it's used to counteract the deprivation of legal personhood in the history of slavery. Um, and you've done a very, very beautiful job of tying those together, as ever. Um, so I did want to ask you um, a kind of classic American question um, from one American to another. Um, to say, Are you still American um, after all this time? No, well, you studied it. You, <laughs> took, you took a degree in American studies. So <laughs> you should um, get this question. So, um, like, you know, David Schneider, when he says American yes. kinship, he says biology means something very specific and the symbolism of American kin ties. But that wouldn't apply to you if you had, as it were, the wrong drop of blood because you couldn't have a biological tie if you were an owned slave person. So the deprivation of a biological you know, identity, in a way, is a kind of large historical question that has a very specific American quality. Mm -hmm. And I just, I mean, this, like I said, it's not a very helpful question because it's a bit confused, but um, this is just something that your talk makes me think about because, um, because we don't think of biology, as it were, in national terms mm -hmm. um, or in, um, we might say, um, sort of um, vertically segregated historical terms. Um, but in fact, that's exactly the portrait you show and that maybe Ruth Simmons was very sensitive to in wanting to, as it were, give people a kind of biological identity that you mm -hmm. were, that was exactly the one that was taken away, both symbolically and legally. I just wondered for your next project um, whether that might be one of the questions vis-a-vis, -vis, say, Hortense Spiller in American Grammar, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. what, what is the American Grammar of DNA? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. It, you know, it's, it, it's curious for me as a scholar to be here because, you know, the, the, the theoretical work that I'm weaned on is David Schneider's American Kinship, is Hortense Spiller's work on, you know, the American Grammar of Race and Kinship is your work and fictive kinship and other, you know, like we've been really, Kath Weston's The Families We Choose. I mean, you know, this is the work that I, I, I teach. And so um, 
it is a complicated thing to be here, but I think you diagnose it exactly right, Sarah, which is that biological identity and biological kinship has a kind of symbolic, legal, and political valence, right? It's not to say, and, and, what, and why I felt like I had to, to move away from this question of racial essentialism is because people are doing both. I mean, they're doing both plus more, right? So people aren't saying, um, sometimes they're saying, if it allows me to participate in a SARA, that I'm a DNA Sierra Leonean. But that doesn't mean that I'm also you know, a U.S. black American and that these is, this is my nuclear family. So, like, all of these things are, and, and Snyder says this as well, you know, effectively. Um, but I think when we got to, because so much of the anthropology of genetics and the sociology of genetics was really um, engaged in a kind of ideological battle around, you know, what genetics could mean and that it could sort of only mean one thing in a curious sort of way, um, I think that we, for a while, have have missed that. Um, all, and now that there's more genetics in more places, right? I mean, part of it is also about the spillover I'm talking about. So it's no longer um, only about the family even in one place, right? So you've got the family and the familial searching of forensic DNA. And you've got the family and what that means for... Um, uh, the sort of carrying forward of a genetic marker, and then you've got the family of ancestry and kinship, and we've got, indeed, also new kinship categories. So, um, you know, genetic genealogists use things like DNA Sierra Leonean, DNA cousin, um, you know, third-degree cousin, which, you know, on the one hand is, um, uh, you know, if they were just cousins, you'd call them cousins, right? So there's something linguistically happening um, a kind of linguistic work that's being done there. It could be something as easy as I say DNA cousin because that's the basis of affiliation. This is the way our cousinship is derived. Um, but I actually think it's something more complicated than that, right? That there are new um, uh, kinship category categories sort of emerging with these technologies that are both biological and symbolic, are both genetic and emotional, um, that need a kind of new space for thinking about them. Thanks for a lovely presentation. Uh, a few months ago, someone asked me um, to if I knew anything about this person appearing, whose name it was appearing in the papers in the, in the context of no platforming and safe spaces. And uh, the name was Charles Murray. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I, I vaguely remember he had something to do with uh, DNA and racial profiling. And, but um, he's obviously a very controversial figure. And so, and can you explain, why, did he have any, was he delving, I know he's a sociologist, was he delving in the, into the DNA? No. Um, no, as far as I know, and I'm not a, um, a, a quick a study as Charles Murray's I should be probably, um, he was doing twin studies, right? So, so not DNA, but sort of twin association studies to, um, you know, make claims about uh, intelligence was his um, uh, 25 years ago or something. Um, but that, and ri- rightly so, that residue has sort of stuck with him. I don't know that today he's still talking about these same things. But, um, uh, but you know, he made some very, um, you know, dare one say, uh, provocative, on the spectrum of provo- from provocative to racist claims um, that were, um, you know, not well substantiated. And certainly now, I mean, you know, twin studies are, 
you know, are, are not the sort of um, gold standard of thinking about uh, genetics and, and heredity with regards to social and behavioral, um, uh, with regards to behavioral traits. So um, I would just offer that. But I don't know, you know, I, I'm not a, a follower of, of Murray, so I, I'm not up to date on what he's talking about other than, you know, being controversial at Middlebury and other college campuses. But I would say, um, you know, Horowitz is a, uh, the David Horowitz um, example that I offered you is in that same um, sort of valence of what's happening with Murray right now, right? This sort of conversation about what could and should be, can be said on campuses. I mean, um, Horowitz is sending, um, under the guise of free speech, right, as a kind of um, ideological category, uh, these ads to college papers to really sort of, you know, stir the pot among students. Um, and uh, I think to similar effect in some places. Thanks so much for the talk. Um, so the stories I've been seeing in the news most recently about genetics and race have been about white supremacists mm-hmm. getting genetic testing and that starting some conversations about kind of policing yeah, yeah, the yeah. boundaries of whiteness. So I was just curious if this is something you're following and what the kind of social life of DNA yes. story is there. This is the work of um, uh, Joan Donovan and Aaron Panofsky, um, and I've been following it because it proves everything that I said in my earlier work about genetic ancestry testing, right, which is that there are, um, that people come to genetic testing with aspirations they're trying to prove out, and then when the aspirations are not proven out by the technology, they engage in all sorts of um, negotiations, um, some of them magical thinking, some of them uh, a kind of geeking out around the technicalities of the science. I mean, you know, the thing with genetic ancestry testing is it, it's such a, a practice. It's a practice that's sort of just st- stewed and steeped in um, uh, and probability and statistical thinking, right? And so, um, y- you know, if you sort of dig around in the science and you can think about, well, what if they had weighted the marker that they're using to say I'm Estonian, you know, a different way and used a different kind of algorithm, would it be different? So, um, you know, I think that work is so powerful, both because it's um, a power- powerful explanation of this community in this moment, but that it, um, you know, allows us to get, I mean, not quite generalizable, but there are actually mechanisms that genetic ancestry testing sort of put into play that are consistent across populations um, and across political aspirations for what people hope the test will do. And, that are, and that's really about this aspiration piece. That there's a kind of, um, because it's a consumer product, regardless of what your ideological background coming into it is, there's a kind of tautology of desire, both as input and output, right? So you're, there are things you want to know, and then if you don't get them, because you are the individual consumer, um, and because actually the companies are actually not often very good at science education, or not very good at um, you know, highlighting in some cases at the margins of error, huge. I mean, that there, you know, there's all of this sort of gray area, um, and because they sort of are quiet about that, there's all of this sort of space for um, negotiation about what it means, um, and um, and that'll continue to be the case. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's two questions here. So one, <laughs> I'm not very good at pointing. There's one here. Sorry, and then there's one at the back. Carry on. Am I, am I first? Yes. <laughs> Hi. Um, I was wondering um, if you see any difficulty or if you see a possibility of reducing a person to its genes, because I agree that 
it's very fascinating what we can find out, but maybe is there a possibility that we reduce a person um, to exclude maybe social relations and other influential people that aren't genetically um, related? And with, with regard to thinking about kinship or, or about...? Um, so, um, yeah, I guess, yeah. And so what I mean is, is, can you see a person maybe only for the genes and not for what their experiences as much? Or can we forget about the experiences? Or no. <laughs> Are you a scientist? No. Um, no? No? Sociologist. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I don't, think you, I don't think the genes exist outside of social relations or, or meaning. I mean, it literally is... Um, if you were in a, in a geneticist lab and you were getting the data, like, you have to tell a story about it. I mean, it's literally, they're just, mar- they're, you know, markers. They're, you know, depending on the, the type of analysis and, or, you know, differences in markers between people and these sorts of things. And so somebody has to say something about what that means, right? And sometimes that's um, scientific jargon and science ease, and, and sometimes it's about ancestry, but all of it is about giving significance, right, to um, what, the, what these data are. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think other I mean, people might disagree, but I think there's no space outside of that kind of sociality or social meaning and significance of, of the, the genes. I mean, I will say there are places where, I mean, why, to, to, to this question also about the white nationalists, why there's play there is because it's a consumer product. People opt into this, right? So people are sending $99, $299, $349 to purchase this and sort of play out this aspiration about, you know, who they hope they might be. Um, but there are certainly other social and institutional sites in which there's no give at all. So if you're talking about um, the criminal justice system, um, which in some municipalities has similar problems around databases, has similar problems around black boxing what the algorithms are, whether or not um, you know, uh, defense lawyers can have access to what the technology is. We're having cases being tried in New York City right now about adjudicated about this. There's no play there, right? There's no, it, it is what the gene, what we say the gene says, right, is the outcome. Because you have an institutional struggle, a t- um, um, structure that's top down, right? It's the criminal justice system saying, you know, to you, um, you know, the evidence was found here and our, you know, CODIS database says X and, and thus this is a disposition for the rest of your life. And so, I, I do would want to you to understand that the genetic ancestry testing in some ways is the most extreme um, of, uh, vol- volitional space um, for genetics and that there are other spaces that, um, that let, me, let me see if I had your, I didn't write down, that reduce people to, to genes, but that the, the, the meaning making is still happening, right? But it's a different kind of power structure um, that allows us to ignore or to kind of black box it in a way. Um, yes. Hello, can you hear me? Barely. <laughs> we're, we're old. <laughs> I'll speak for myself. I'm old. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your time, Alondra. I just wanted to ask... Um, in regards to when you spoke about the African Ancestry Inc. company, by turning an African burial ground into a company, in terms of respect to the deceased slaves, I personally think that is disrespectful because slaves are buried there. 
maybe they might not have even had a chance to be buried at yes. all. They might have just been cast aside. But the fact that they've been buried is a good thing. So I thought it was disrespectful for someone yeah. to build a company on the same ground. But I just wanted to know what your views were on this. Yes. Piece. Okay. Thank you for that um, and for allowing me to say more about that piece, which I had to really skip over. So... Um, so the African Burial Ground Project starts in 1991 in New York City. Um, the, um, a federal agency is, wants to put up a new federal building, and uh, there are historical maps that say where they want to put the building either sits underneath, will be underneath, or next to what was called the Negroes Burying Ground. Um, I'm from uh, California and from Southern California, where there are a lot of powerful laws about you know, digging anywhere. You can't even really dig in your backyard unless you have a sort of cultural resource management people there. Um, because there is a respect and, you know, it's really about um, uh, regulations having to do with uh, relationships to indigenous communities. But you can't just dig anywhere in California. So for me as a Californian coming to New York City and, you know, the mid-1990s and hearing about the African burial ground, I couldn't even believe that they could proceed, right? So they proceed and um, it starts out as a construction site, but it becomes an excavation site because there are remains buried there. So you are right. You won't be surprised to hear that there was a lot of activism around this site. There was um, a, a social movement group that called themselves as a social a descendants of the African burial ground, right? So we don't know. So this is another kinship claim. We don't actually, there's been no excavation yet, really, or if there's been excavation, there's been no analysis. So we actually don't know who's buried there, but activists, African-American activists in the communities are making a, a, you know, an ancestral claim, a political claim, that they should be in charge of what happens to the remains. So some of those people are um, kind of spiritual activists who, from the time the graves were opened, um, sort of carried on 24-hour vigils of prayer and of drumming to rest the souls of their ancestors, who they understood as their ancestors, and were very thought it, like you do, thought it was, could be disrespectful and wanted to just cover the remains and just be done with it. There were another group who understood themselves to be descendants of the African burial ground who, um, through very kind of complicated means that I write about, um, sort of said, well, this might be an opportunity to know something about enslaved Africans that we could never otherwise know. And um, they had a whole critique of scientific racism. They accused some uh, white anthropologists, biological anthropologists and geneticists of um, wanting to engage in the biological racing, this is their the, this activist words, of their ancestors' remains. And they understood that you could do, um, I wish I had the slide with me, craniometry, genetic analysis, other forms of biometric analysis to their minds in an anti-racist frame. So the research project gets moved to Howard University from a, a Columbia, um, a City University of New York lab and is done in a different way. But there was lots of, as you, exactly as you suggest, there was a lot of controversy for all sorts of reasons, including um, concerns about the souls of those, disturbing the souls and the burials there um, uh, as part of that. Yeah, I should. Um, I was interested in the ethnographic part of your research. What were some of the challenges you faced, assuming you approached your subjects or research participants with some amount of skepticism, I imagine? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, so um, 
one of the biggest challenges was approaching with skepticism but not being disrespectful. So there are, um, you know, there are kind of norms in African-American and middle-class African communities about how you treat elders, right? So all of the people that I was interviewing were older than me. And so some of the silences I think that all families have are, you know, even if you're asking questions in your own family, um, in my family, you just can't go, I can't go to a great aunt and say, tell me what it was like in 1923 when you, like, it's actually disrespectful, right? So I both had to deal with the kind of skepticism, but trying to get the information, but trying to be appropriate for a kind of, often a space that was a kind of black communal space or something, even understanding, like, what even is that black communal, you know, what is that as a thing? Um, and, you know, I was deeply skeptical, but at the end of doing the research, I thought, here are my options. My options are um, that all these people are doing all these things. And I just, you know, the book is just a, like, just a skim of the kind of all of the, the sort of interesting meaning-making and sociality that was happening around this. So I felt like my options were to say, to be, you know, super skeptical and say, they've got some kind of false consciousness. Like, they are just completely interpolated into um, a 21st century performance of scientific racism. And, you know, these people are foolhardy and ridiculous, and there is um, a, a kind of almost pathological yearning for pre-middle passage identity um, that is a sad artifact of the tragedy of human trafficking, right? And I, th I think that's kind of partly true. Um, but, you know, as I explained to you, many of the people that I spent time with and interviewed were really well-educated, knew a lot um, by the time we were done about the science, had thought a lot about it. So some of that is about a performance or negotiation about it. But there was also... And this is where I, I became, um, I think, less skeptical. What I learned um, in the early days, doing learning from conventional genealogists, right, before the, they really start to really uptake the genetic genealogy, is there is a, there's a code of kind of research ethics for genealogists, right, which is that, you know, one piece of information or one data point is never enough. You have to have more. You've got to layer them. They have a whole kind of... Um, habitus about what they do that's very important to them. And so um, as I saw them shifting to some of them to the genetics, they brought some of that with them. I mean, you know, there were questions about how do I know it's true. Sometimes those questions played out um, through more consumption, right, through using, sending the same sample to many different companies and seeing if you got different results, which you inevitably did, inevitably did which sort of lessened the power, I think, of the um, the genetic test overall. Um, so, so that's one way of answering, but I'm happy to, to say more about the ethnography. I mean, I really went from, um, you know, soliciting people to sit with me for interviews to just being in the field. So I was here in Brixton. I was at the, you know, Museum of London spending time with the Motherland Group and just sort of trying to understand why people thought this was meaningful and important year after year after year. Great answer. Uh, yeah, in the middle there, and then you. Okay, can you hear me? Is that okay? Yeah, it's very bass, bass voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm a medical student, and I've read a bit about the sort of dubious history of a lot of the gynecological advancements that we've made in medical science. You have to speak up a little bit. You've read about the dubious history of gynecological advancements, is that what you said? 
เลยอย่าโอเค so as I was, I've read a lot about well I've read a little bit about the dubious history of some of the gynecological advancements that we've made with regards to the Tuskegee experiments or the, what what uh, Tuskegee yeah yeah or for example the story of Henrietta Henrietta Lacks mm-hmm. and I was reading a few months ago an article in the New Inquiry this idea of medical reparations Hmm. This idea that um, because of the unethical practices and the harms done to primarily black women, that there should be some sort of justice elicited as a result and in, in hmm. recognition of those harms. And I was wondering more what your thoughts were on that idea and how you could reconcile that with this idea that is. Um, Backed and supported by many groups all over the world of universal access to healthcare and this idea of non-discrimination and all these other ideals that I believe healthcare should follow. Fascinating. I, I don't. I hadn't heard of this. Um, these claims about medical reparations. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised to hear them. Um, and surprised. I'm not surprised um, as someone who works on health to hear them brought into. Um, these other political conversations around, you know, social justice and racial justice <coughs> issues. Um, Gosh, what to say? I mean, I I don't know. I, I would I would like to to hear hear more about the claims. I mean, you know, I um, I write about in in my the in my book Body and Soul about the sort of conundrum for um, African American communities being um, uh, the particular ones I write about, but I think it's more generally true um, being um, you know both overexposed um, to the worst harms of. Medical experimentation, um, technological surveillance, and underserved, right? Which is sort of the dialectic that you're sort of talking about, and it's, it's what I use in, in the book as well. Um, and you know, I think that's true. So I think there's a kind of inherent connection between um, debates around health disparities and a lack of care to healthcare access. I mean, I think it's by design, um, and you know. People being sort of overexposed to the kind of worst vagaries of experimentation, um, and of course, um, by design, it's it's women and black women in particular. I mean, one of the things I um, often try to point out to people about the Henrietta Lacks case. There's lots that one can say about that, but um, you know, she has a, a cancer diagnosis in 1951 at a time when the United States, in the United States, um, women weren't allowed to get diagnoses from their doctors, right? So not only was she um, a woman of You know, working class, working woman of color. Um, the doctors would have felt, if he felt any responsibility to her or family at all, would have been to her husband. So, I mean, she might have well died of cancer without ever knowing that she had it, because doctors didn't have to talk to women about their own bodies and their own health care, right? Um, so, I think there's there's lots to say. And I don't. What is the new inquiry? Is that a magazine or a newspaper? Yeah, it's an. I think it describes itself as an internet lady blog. An internet lady blog. Okay, well, I'll have to get up to speed with that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. Uh, just now, the example of the Georgetown University is showing that how institutions can make their choices to create new norms, uh, more norms. So, how about nations level? I mean that. Uh, 
how do you see the possibilities of governments that taking initiative and cooperating with each other to make use of the genealogy and genetic testing to solve international conflicts and do reconciliation? Yeah. So um, the Argentina case is kind of as an example of nation states. I mean, there are other um, the category that's often used is humanitarian DNA. There are other cases of uh, you know, humanitarian DNA after genocide, um, after um, expulsion uh, and the like. Um, and um, so there are other state uses. I think um, the proliferation now of genetic technologies and the, and the interoperability of kinds of technology, of genetic databases in this moment, that wasn't the case in 1986 or even 1996, um, makes it, to my mind, a pretty dangerous proposition. I mean, to have, um, at this moment, I think states really engaged in um, that kind of genetic surveillance, even if it's sort of well-intended. Um, so I would offer that as a response. And I guess the other thing I, I would say is that um, in the U.S. context around sort of racial justice issues, um, to the extent the state was ever really engaged in them, you know, was sort of dragged into them, you might say, in the sort of 60s by the civil rights movement um, activists, um, there's now been a kind of um, uh, sort of wiping the hand, you know, like we've done that. You know, the sort of narrative around racial politics in the U.S. easily tilts to, you know, we had the civil rights movement, it's over and everything's fine. And so, you know, part of the argument in the longer piece that I'm making is that um, it's, this is a lot of weight to put on universities, but it turns to universities because there are a few other institutional spaces that can that there's even a possibility to entertain a moral responsibility or a moral kind of um, a sense of rights and obligations around um, issues of, of some issues of social justice. We've got one more question. Yeah, just the last question, then you can go and have a glass of water and a glass of wine or something. Hi, um, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, my question relates to um, the, increased use, the increased use of um, direct-to-consumer genetic testing. The and increased use of? I mean, direct-to-consumer yes. genetic testing. Yes, And is there a potential for harm where um, there's a general view that we're kind of panacea for determining a person's genetic identity? And kind of, kind of, could there be kind of effect on person's self-esteem and identity when, for example, a person does a test and finds out they're not as European or as African as, as, as they had assumed they were? So what's the question? Is it a kind of panacea and is there a harm? Is there a, is harm there a, and is there a potential for harm where, for example, if somebody does a test and finds out that kind of assumptions they made about their identity might not necessarily be true? Right. It might not be the case. I hear you. I hear you. Um, in my experience, I think what people think they're going to get is never what they get for all sorts of reasons, right? I mean, um, genealogical aspirations are often um, about um, what people hope they are, what family stories have been. Um, so I feel, like it, I feel like most people, I mean, if I had to sort of just make a guesstimate, you know, I would say 85% of the people I encountered were somewhat surprised, right? I mean, people weren't surprised in the general sense that, like, oh, this suggests I have, if they're African-American, some sub-Saharan African ancestry. But um, there might be evidence or inferences of other types of ancestry that they weren't expecting, and that tends to be true to, for more people than for not. Um, I think um, in, the, in the sort of, as a child of, a genealogical, intellectual genealogical child of Troy Duster, um, 
when these companies were first being introduced, a lot of um, our conversation and the sociologist of science, sociology of science was about potential harms and about, um, uh, about the harms that might, um, uh, that we, you know, should there be regulation? How should we be thinking about this? And uh, how do I want to say this in a not too complicated way? I mean, I, there is something about um, the neoliberal self that absorbs harms, right? There's a kind of way in which it's not the responsibility that, that um, you know, I'm the consumer. I've opted into this. I got information I didn't like. You know, I've just I've got to deal with it, right? There's that there's that there's that's not someone else's problem to deal with either on the level of regulation or on the level of consumer education. And so I don't see harms because um, I see less harms than I think we would have expected because people think it's their fault or it's their kind of issue to deal with. And harm suggests that you're saying that someone has harmed you, right? And so there's a, so there's a kind of impossibility in some cases for harm, at least in the, the sort of ancestry consumer space. Um, there are all sorts of other places for harm um, to take place. And then there are also possibilities for um, positives, right? I mean, for, for you know, a, a big um, group of consumers for direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry testing are adoptees who often don't know anything about their ancestry at all. So there's that piece of it as well. Thank you very much. There's a reception outside and there are books to sign. You can meet Londra and have a glass of wine on us. Thank you very much, Alondra. That was wonderful.